Mars beckons at the 2021 Humans to Mars Summit, this week on Planetary Radio. Welcome. I'm Matt Kaplan of the Planetary Society with more of the human adventure across our solar system and beyond. A pandemic couldn't keep Explore Mars from once again producing a wonderful gathering of would-be Martians. I was honored to moderate three panel discussions at this year's summit. You'll hear highlights in moments, including contributions from outstanding representatives at the space agencies of Europe, Japan, the United Arab Emirates, and the United States as we push toward the Red Planet. A very fun visit with Planetary Society Chief Scientist Bruce Betts is also in store. I'll get to space headlines in a moment, but I also want to let you know about a terrific opportunity. Our friends at the U.S. Space and Rocket Center outside Huntsville, Alabama, are looking for a few good space nerds, the kind who want to share the PB&J, the passion, beauty, and joy of science, with young people. They are hiring counselors for space camp. You don't need a lot of space experience or knowledge, but love of science is probably a must. Anyone 19 or older can be considered. You don't even have to live nearby. The center offers free room and board on a first-come, first-served basis to some lucky counselors. Training for new counselors is included. I don't have time to share all the great perks, but you can learn more and apply at rocketcenter.com careers. We'll put that link on this week's show page, of course. Heck, I'd apply if I didn't have this pesky show to do. Now those headlines drawn from the September 24 edition of The Downlink, the free weekly newsletter from the Planetary Society. Not only will there soon be a viper on the moon, but we know where it will be. NASA has chosen Noble Crater near the lunar south pole for the Volatiles Investigating Polar Exploration Rover. It's a cute little fellow, especially with its mass-mounted headlight. Viper is slated for launch next year. Three Chinese astronauts are back on Earth after 90 days aboard that nation's new space station. The next crew may be announced soon. You're about to hear NASA's Lori Glaze mention the ongoing success of the Ingenuity helicopter on Mars. The tiny whirly bird has completed 13 flights, but the change of seasons may make its next forays more difficult. Fly on, little robot. You can always find and subscribe to the downlink at planetary.org downlink. I am so grateful to explore Mars. They keep inviting me back to the Humans to Mars Summit, where I can happily lose myself among scientists, engineers, writers, policymakers, and others who keep their sights on the red planet. This year's three-day summit had to remain virtual for the usual reason. Explore Mars hopes that the next summit in May of 2022 will finally let us all gather in Washington, D.C. again. In the meantime, you can watch streaming video of this year's sessions, including my three. We've got the direct link on this week's episode page at planetary.org radio, but you can also get there from exploremars.org. I'll start today's collection of highlights with the panel that has become the traditional close for H2M. We call it Why Mars? It's a chance for an amazing collection of Martians to tell us why they do what they do and why they want to see boots on the red planet. I'll give you the lineup now so that I can stay out of the way as you listen. We'll begin with Jim Garvin, chief scientist at NASA's fabled Goddard Space Flight Center in Maryland. Greg Chavers is NASA's Acting Deputy Associate Administrator for Systems Engineering and Integration in what used to be the Human Exploration and Operations Mission Directorate. Stay tuned. Kavya Manyapu is with NASA's Flight Systems Operations and Training in the Extravehicular Activity Branch. She's also an adjunct professor at the University of North Dakota, teaching in the Space Studies Department, and works on spacesuit technologies. Educator Steve Sherman is the Chief Imagination Officer for Living Maths. As you'll hear, he joined us from his native South Africa. Hunter Stanchak is the founder and lead developer of Colonize Mars, a blockchain-based game that tells the story of a simulated colony on the Red Planet. And Aaron Shepard is an electrical and robotics engineer, also a science communicator in South Carolina. 
We'll close with my co-moderator, Janet Ivey of Janet's Planet, educator and the president of Explore Mars. Jim Garvin? Thanks, Matt and Janet, and well, welcome to Mars. I want to start with asking the question differently, and I would say it's why Mars now? Because we're in the midst of an absolute revolution in understanding our brotherly planet. In fact, it's nearly the perfect storm in the sense of going somewhere really cool to go to Mars. The scientific exploration of this world over the past 25 years has opened that frontier. We're moving, driving, flying, drilling, sampling, measuring Mars right now as we speak with robots like Perseverance, her, her partner Ingenuity giving us dronescapes of this fabulous world, tools that will allow us to ask questions about seriously whether the biosignatures that could tell us about ancient Mars that may or may not have been alive are possible there. This is the Mars we've now invented thanks to masterpieces of engineering. And that frontier 25 years ago was much murkier. But today, thanks to digital exploration, engineering by these robotic emissaries, the Mars we see is even better than we dared hoped. There's even an under Mars where part of the planet which we don't see is likely to contain records of ancient ices and other things. So I submit to you, the why Mars is because science and engineering have given us the tools to make Mars ours. And for us as people, as explorers, changing that digital exploration pathway from that which we live now with cycles of command loops to that which we will live today with ourselves there, that's the opportunity we have. I say, Mars, here we come. That was perfect. What a great kickoff for uh, the first of our presentations today. Thanks for bringing us the science and uh, and what's behind it. We're going to go on now to, uh, well, NASA headquarters, basically. Greg Shavers is uh, uh, going to pick up uh, with our second presentation, answering that uh, overarching question. Greg, it's all yours. All right. Thank you. Yeah, a lot of people ask, why do we need to send humans to Mars? Why can't we use robots to learn everything we need to learn at Mars? Well, thanks to our successful fleet of robotic missions, we've made important new discoveries about Mars, but human explorers have the benefit of intuition, rapid decision-making, and dexterity that are unmatched by robots. Astronauts don't need a command loop cycle to complete tasks. Our human curiosity drives new discovery. The most advanced robots cannot replace human understanding and emotion behind new discoveries, not just the facts, but the cumulative meaning of those discoveries. Humans are intuitive and they're able to make rapid decisions as they take in new information. We can improvise when things don't go as planned. For example, if there are adjustments or, or physical alignments needed in our ro robotics or instrumentation, an astronaut can do that real time. What can take years for a robot to accomplish on Mars could take hours for a human to accomplish. And the solar system is full of exciting destinations but aside from Earth, Mars is the closest to being habitable. It's got day-night cycles similar to Earth. It's got seasons. It's got similar terrain and to Earth's deserts and mountains and cliffs and valleys and dunes. And it has abundant natural resources that can be used, such as oxygen from ice or, or carbon dioxide, uh, water, minerals, uh, and sunlight. So one of NASA's long-term goals is to expand human presence into the solar system. And sending humans to Mars is the natural next step for that. And we will use the moon to help us get there. And this is America's moon to Mars exploration approach. Thank you, Greg. That was great. Boy, that brings up so many questions. Let's go on now to our third presenter, Kavya. Thank you, Matt and Janet. It's a pleasure to be here. Why Mars? I would actually like to start off with my observations of the world in the last 18 months. Why does it have to take tragedy for us to solve a problem? Why does it have to take tragedy to address human survival? And why does it have to take tragedy for us to come together and help us transcend our boundaries? Let me pause there for a moment for that question to sink in. Why Mars? Mars, because of its rich destination for scientific discovery, a driver for technological advancement, and a platform to really push our understanding of what we are capable of accomplishing together. Why Mars? Mars, because it would mean to really understand human survival, to sustain human life on another planet, 
and not just to survive, but to thrive. Why Mars? Mars, because it would mean to develop life support technologies that have to work independently of the resources from Earth, which really in turn would help us solve some of the most pressing problems on Earth for the survival of our species. Why Mars? Because to expand human consciousness, that is in each of us from a mere personal identity to a global or even a cosmic identity that is naturally inclusive. And finally, why Mars? And Mars, because it would really take more than just one person, one community, one agency, or one nation to make it happen. It would really force us to see beyond our differences, working towards a common goal of making us a multi-planetary species. And really, I cannot think of any other greater goal that can really help us evolve as humans than making humans a multi-planetary species. And if we really need to move that needle in this direction, then let's not think of the limitations of being human, but rather focus on the immense possibilities of being a human. And Mars really provides us that frontier. And that's why Mars. That's a lovely message. Thank you so much, Kavya. I am hearing so many good reasons for why Mars. Uh, let's go on now to uh, where it is uh, just coming into springtime, I believe. Steve Sherman down in South Africa. Why Mars? Why Mars? Well, thank you, Janet and uh, Matt, for this wonderful opportunity to speak to people who are passionate about STEM. First of all, as educators, we teach our children to think critically to problem solve, to think outside of the box and to innovate. We teach them about the environment. We teach them about caring for others and protecting our future. They learn about technology and how to improve their lives using this technology. What is the point of preparing our students for a future if we have no intention of building one? The exploration of Mars, among many other endeavors like medical advancements, environmental solutions, economic improvements and social equality, etc., is an opportunity to put these skills into practical use to build a better future for all. And Nelson Mandela said it best, it always seems impossible until it is done. Now, if you take the last couple of months, if these are anything to go by, and that includes tonight, with the Inspiration for Mission, we will see far more civilian astro explorers stepping up to the plate. So when I tell students that they could become an astronaut in the future, it is no longer about motivating them. It's actually about probability. And not only that, who would have thought that space travel could become a mainstream activity? So why not look towards traveling towards Mars? And finally, I bring astronauts and space scientists out to South Africa to give students access to them. I want them to be exposed to role players in the space industry. And I do this in the hope that some of these students will become role players themselves. I do this because I would love us as a species to push the boundaries of exploration. And Mars is one of those milestones. Thank you very much, Steve. Uh, and some of you may have caught uh, Steve's live contribution to H2M earlier today, as he did exactly what he was telling us uh, about just now, uh, making a space expert, uh, one of our speakers, available to those uh, students. It is an important message, building that future. Let's go on now to Hunter Stanchak, who, uh, well, we had a little preview of uh, some of the images that you're about to see. Let's see if they knock your socks off as they have mine. Yeah, thank you everyone for having me be a part of this conversation. I'm super excited to be here. Uh, but I believe, you know, Mars is going to be possibly the most important undertaking of our lifetime because it's going to help us answer fundamental scientific questions. It's going to help satisfy our innate human desire for progress. And sort of like what Steve was alluding to, it's going to really inspire younger generations to explore science and space. So for me personally, the prospect of becoming a spacefaring multi-planetary civilization is a great reason to get up in the morning.
But I do believe that a crucial factor in achieving this is that we really need more people to feel this way. I believe millions more, in fact, really need to be interested in going to Mars. It needs to become culturally relevant and a shared dream amongst people because human will and imagination are immensely powerful forces. And when people are inspired, they can be galvanized to act and accomplish really amazing things. So at Colonize Mars, our vision is to catalyze the will of humanity to become multiplanetary. And we're doing this through the powerful medium of story. Colonize Mars is a blockchain-based simulation game that will allow players to participate in growing a small, a small Mars base into a self-sustaining city. And players will start by collecting digital trading cards, which represent vehicles, equipment, buildings, and astronauts are useful on Mars. Um, here's a few examples. And all of our artwork is designed and, and drawn by our team. The cards are non-fungible tokens, which means they're each unique and tied to the blockchain. So players have true ownership of their digital card collections. Each player's trading cards come to life through gameplay, which takes place on our website via an interactive 3D map. And players can use their cards to help maintain items within the Mars base to help organize expeditions outside the base and also eventually construct new buildings and equipment of their own. And the base will continue to expand over time. And our goal is to use the latest aerospace technology to inform mission payloads and objectives so that you know, players are educated on the real science needed to create a self-sustaining civilization on Mars. So what we're effectively doing is getting people to apply their intelligence and creativity to actual challenges of establishing a city on Mars via gameplay. And we chose the medium of gaming because we understand how many people are in the space and also how powerful it can be. And also sometimes that life really imitates art and that can push us all forward. For instance, in, in 1992, a, a novelist, Neil Stevenson, he wrote a book called Snow Crash. And in it, humans as avatars interact with each other and software agents in a virtual reality 3D environment. And he coined the name of the space, the metaverse. Well, recently, Mark Zuckerberg announced that Facebook has begun building the metaverse for real. So sometimes a compelling story can be the vehicle for new realities. And interactive stories like the one that we're building, uh, we believe have the power to inspire millions of people and focus their will on making something like a, a mission uh, like Mars a reality. Thank you, Hunter. Game on. I love those images, <laughs> uh, the cards. I, I want those as posters uh, in, my, in my home office. Aaron Shepard, uh, engineer, science communicator, it's your turn. Okay, yes. So uh, like it's been stated, I am an engineer and that is about half of my personality. And that half of my personality is very analytical. I want numbers, I want data. So I'm gonna give you some data right now that really I think will bring the point home. There was a study done by Nature Magazine. I can't remember the exact year, it may have been 2011, but in that study, they noted that half of the scientists that published in Nature ever cite the moon landing as the single event that inspired them to go into science. Think about that. Half of the research that was published in Nature, research that has improved a lot of our lives, research that has directly saved people's lives, was inspired by the moon landing, a major event in space. When you think about that, Mars is the next step and it is the next generation. It is how many people will be inspired, not just to go into space, but to go into science, go into technology, to use their collective brain power to solve hard problems because they're seeing a live example of it now. I think that that will continue to improve lives. And I can't even imagine to think how many lives that will save in the future. It's frustrating because a lot of times we're, we're so stuck on what's going on here on earth but we don't see ahead and we don't see how space influences us and space inspires us. Now that's the engineer half of me. Now there is the communicator half of me who is the human, the artist, the, uh, if I could draw better, I'd probably be an artist too, but I've got software so I can do it in CAD instead. And in that half, I think about just the fact that exploration, it is an, a kind of science, science me is popping out again, but it is encoded in our DNA. That is how we survived. That is how we evolved. We did not stay in one place. We went from place to place. We learned, we shared, we grew. And so when we look at Mars, the desire to travel there, the desire to be there, that is essentially who we are. And traveling to Mars enables us to be more fully human than we could ever possibly be. I grew up a big fan of space flight my entire life. For the longest time, I never really, it, space was just this thing that I saw. 
on TV. And I was like, oh, wow, that was cool. But the moment, the moment that it became real to me was actually a few years ago. Um, I was at Humans to Mars in 2018 and I was at an event and I'm somehow, some way I'm sitting next to Buzz Aldrin and I am looking at this guy three feet from me and I can look in this man's eyes. And when I see, I can see the fact that he went to the moon and back. I can hear him talk about it. The story all of a sudden goes from being this grainy footage that I used to see on TV in class to being real. And that is so inspiring and so powerful. And so I think when we go to Mars, it's not just about going to Mars, but it's about going to Mars, being able to bring people back who can tell the story, who can personify it, who can make it real for the rest of us. Because when we see that, that again, we are humans and we are built to connect in that way. So in short, going to Mars allows us to be more human than we've ever been before. Thank you very much, Aaron. Hey, uh, the TED Talks people were on the phone. They want to talk. Um, <laughs> Janet, it's your turn to uh, tell us as president of Explore Mars and a lifelong enthusiast, why Mars? Thank you to all of you. You've touched on hints of things that I think and believe are true. I'm going to build on what Aaron ended with. It's like I've said for a long time as a lover of both art and science that we must make it our mission to honor creative thought as the birthplace of every scientific advancement and endeavor that has ever been or ever will be. Because in and through art and science are sewn the threads of understanding, exhibition, uh, exposition, and innovation. And we must never forsake that discovery potential that is indelible when we give art and wonder and exploration a chance to do its most profound and scientific good. My why Mars is this because I believe in team human. Each of us, a thermodynamic miracle related to Earth chemically, each other biologically, and the universe atomically. We are ferociously cosmic. And we were designed to seek to know and to push the boundaries of our scientific and technical limits and then push further. If indeed space is a team sport, as my friend Naeem Altoff of IBM said earlier today, then as access to space increases for us all, then what we innovate to thrive on Mars will thusly create extraordinary benefits for life and sustainability here on Earth and elsewhere. And that's when we begin to truly engage in this collective endeavor with that overview perspective that there is no great divide in the family of humanity. Then we will be a multiplanetary species. Then we will all have learned how to be the best of crewmates on this moat of dust suspended in a sunbeam and on Mars. And I live with this expectation of seeing my students living this in full reality. And that's my Why Mars. Explore Mars President Janet Ivey closing out our sampling of the Why Mars panel at the 2021 Humans to Mars Summit. While many of us look forward to those human boots on Mars, it will remain a planet of robots for at least another decade. And that was the title of another of my panels at the summit. Planet of Robots, Recent Milestones and Discoveries on Mars. I was joined by yet another impressive group of explorers, beginning with Lori Glaze, the director of NASA's Planetary Science Division. Following Lori was Sanjay Vijendran, Mars Strategy Team Leader and future Mars Studies Coordinator for the European Space Agency. Masaki Fujimoto is Deputy Director General of the Japanese Space Agency's Institute of Space and Astronautical Science. And Hesa Almatrushi is Science Lead for HOPE, the Emirates Mars mission out of the Mohammed bin Rashid Space Center in the UAE. Here's Lori Glaze. Thank you so much, Matt. I'm just very briefly going to speak a little bit about um, the robotic exploration of Mars over about the last 20 years. Uh, which has really been very focused and strategic, beginning with a strategy of following the water, meaning looking for places on Mars where we believe water may have been present in the past, uh, with the idea that every place we find life on Earth, we find water. That was the original strategy 20 years ago, really trying to look for those environments. And then once really multiple times confirming the presence of water in the past, beginning to explore the habitability of Mars with uh, missions like the Curiosity rover. 
And then now beyond that, taking the next steps, which means actually seeking those signs of life, uh, which is uh, part of the, the strategy that's driving some of the current missions that, that are at or are being planned for visiting Mars. And I just want to point out how wonderful it is to, to have such an international collection of exploration missions at Mars. In addition to the NASA missions, you can see on this chart missions from the Indian Space Research Organization, missions from the European Space Agency. Um, we now have UAE joining with HOPE and China joining with Tianwen-1. And then looking forward just to uh, 2024 with the, the MMX mission from JAXA, which I'm sure we'll hear more about several of these missions today, um, and then also Mars sample return in the future. I thought I'd give you a very quick update on what's happening with the Perseverance rover, our current most recent uh, robot on the surface of Mars, uh, for NASA anyway. Uh, we just uh, last week reported successful collection of the first two samples on Mars. Um, this turned out to be more challenging than we uh, had expected, but we frequently meet with challenges. Our first attempt into a rock, which actually was, uh, it, it, it fell apart. It wasn't as strong of a rock um, as we had, had thought it might be. Uh, so for our second attempt, you can see on the right, we chose a rock that was large and blocky and angular, and really appeared to be a, a hard volcanic rock. Um, you can see on the top right where we did abrasion to check on the surface to really see what the composition is inside this rock with several of our instruments. And then on the bottom right, you can see the drill hole from the first sample and confirmation of that rock inside the tube on the, on the bottom right. Of course, the uh, companion that flew to Mars with Mars 2020 Perseverance rover was the Ingenuity helicopter. And what an exciting experiment this has turned out to be as a technology demonstration, uh, successfully completed its first five flights. Uh, one of those um, successful flights where it traversed away from its starting point and then came back, comes back into the field of view from Perseverance rover. This uh, little helicopter is now transitioned into a, a operations demonstration phase where it's supporting Perseverance has now completed 13 successful flights. Next slide, please. And then of course, thinking ahead to the next big thing for Mars with those first two samples, we now have the first two of those potential candidate samples that will return back to Earth uh, with the Mars sample return campaign. One of the most aggressive uh, and challenging things we've ever attempted. This is a partnership with European Space Agency. You can see on the far left, the Mars 2020 Perseverance rover, which is now already on the surface and beginning its collection of, of samples. You can then see the next column going up is the Earth return orbiter provided by ESA, which I'm sure we'll hear more about followed by the sample retrieval lander to NASA launch to send to the surface a Mars Ascent vehicle um, and a uh, fetch rover that will then launch those samples collected by Perseverance into orbit to be collected by that Earth return orbiter and returned back to Earth for analysis. Very exciting times. Thank you, Laura. I, I Especially exciting for all of us uh, Martians out here who are enjoying this so much. And I look forward to talking more about what's happening with this uh, Finally, sample return from Mars well underway. Sanjay, we are ready to hear from you. Thank you, Matt. Thank you for the opportunity to uh, tell you a little bit about the recent discoveries uh, of the ESA missions at Mars right now and, and a bit about our planning for future robotic missions. So ESA's Mars exploration program to date has been very much driven by our interest in Europe to search for life on Mars, as it is uh, for, for many other agencies interested in exploring Mars. So our first mission uh, launched in 2003, Mars Express, uh, which is still operating now in orbit around Mars, almost 20 years later, uh, was sent to look for water, so where water might uh, exist in the subsurface of Mars and, and to understand the surface uh, and how it's been changed by water over time, all uh, driven by the interest to understand uh, the prospect for past or, or even present life. So major discoveries have been uh, glacial landforms and even a potential subsurface uh, lake uh, buried deep beneath the surface uh, of Mars. And then the ExoMars Trace Gas Orbiter, which was launched in 2016 and is currently in, in orbit uh, around Mars, that has been uh, searching for life through uh, signatures of methane. This was an interesting tantalizing discovery that Mars Express appeared to have made, uh, which prompted the interest to send another orbiter looking specifically for methane. And one of the surprising findings has been from uh, TGO that there is no signature of methane as, as far as it can measure, even with the high accuracy instruments it has on board. So that that's uh, one of the exciting things that we we always uh, encounter when we do exploration is we, we go expecting to find something and then we, we find something else. And then 
then it's a big mystery about where this methane has gone because there's uh, indications from other missions on the surface that there's methane being produced at the surface, but it's not there in orbit. Another major discovery is about the possible uh, subsurface ice getting close to the equator. So we've known for a long time from previous missions that ice exists near the poles on the surface and even below the surface of Mars. But TGO has been finding indications of, of subsurface ice near, near the surface, much closer to the equator than previously thought. TGO has uh, made such a map uh, of the uh, possible subsurface ice on Mars at a higher resolution than uh, previous missions. What's really interesting about the TGO measurements because of its uh, uh, higher sensitivity is it's discovered potential oases of ice even at the equator, which is unexpected because we don't uh, expect to see subsurface uh, ice existing close, so close to the, uh, to the surface. So it's not everywhere uh, by any means, but there are locations which uh, appear to have high concentrations of ice, which for, for for this group uh, at, at this meeting is something of, of strong interest because that could support human exploration in the future. In terms of upcoming uh, science at Mars, we're looking very much forward to our first mission to directly search for past or present life in the deep subsurface of Mars with the ExoMars Rosalind Franklin rover, which is being prepared for launch in uh, September 2022. And it will arrive in early 2023 and be able to drill down up to two meters deep in the subsurface of Mars, deeper than uh, any previous mission has drilled uh, before. So this mission is, is uh, going to directly look for, for life, and we are looking forward to, to seeing what exciting discoveries it makes. Mars sample return you've heard about from LORI, a key collaboration with NASA and ESA is a major partner contributing the Earth Return Orbiter that will return the samples back to Earth from Mars orbit, as well as the sample fetch rover that will travel on the surface and pick up the sample tubes and return it back uh, to the lander. We also have a, a third uh, smaller contribution of the sample transfer arm, which will be able to move tubes from the rover onto the lander. So that's a very exciting program in full development, and we look forward to the launch of those missions later this decade. Looking forward uh, into the future, ESA's right now undertaking an internal uh, strategy development uh, exercise for its entire exploration program, all three destinations. But uh, in terms of Mars strategy, we're looking now at what we will do in the next decade post-ExoMars, so in the 2030s, uh, up to the uh, beginning of human exploration. So what are the uh, precursor missions we need to do with robots in order to fully prepare ourselves to send humans efficiently and safely to Mars? So that's that's some something that's ongoing now, but we can already see that there are some key areas of interest for Europe, uh, topics like climate, uh, resources, where that ice is, ground truthing, where the ice is uh, on the surface comms and navigation, providing the communications and navigation capabilities that are, are needed, as well as further extra astrobiology after ExoMars to follow up any discoveries that are made there. Finally, we want to participate in that human journey together with our international partners to, to send humans to Mars, uh, hopefully by 2040. Uh, we hope uh, one day we'll see a scene just like this, exploring the red planet. Thank you. That is a great image to uh, end on since our target is uh, those boots on Mars. Uh, Sanjay, thank you very much. I love that uh, program title as well, uh, Terra Nova. Uh, Masaki, I think uh, we're ready to go on to your presentation. I'd like to start with the HABS 2. Touchdown and sampling from two spots on the surface of Ryugu. It has brought samples back to Earth. The landing spot was in Umera, Australia, and we have to perform the sample capsule recovery operation under COVID-19, which was not easy. And I really like to uh, thank Australian Space Agency for their great support that enabled us to perform the recovery operation very successfully. So we had a beautiful fireball running across the sky above Umera. And the next slide shows the safe landing and rather smooth spotting of the, of the landing area. We managed to recover the capsule rather quickly. And when we brought it back to Japan, uh, into the, our curation facility. And when we opened up the capsule, what Hayabusa 2 did at Ryugu was a big success. It really was a big catch. These samples will be delivered to the scientists all over the world so that we can understand the origin of water on Earth. And the question is, does this big success lead to another sample return mission from a small body? The answer is yes. We are preparing MMX for a sample return mission. 
and we are moving full steam towards its launch in 2024. In the samples that we will collect from the surface of Phobos, it's likely that they're included Martian samples in that sample. When there's an impact event on the surface of Mars, Phobos is orbiting so close to the planet so that there's a good chance that the debris will be precipitating on the surface of Phobos. They will be inside the samples we will be collecting uh, from Phobos. So that means that MMX is a round trip to Mars, Martian system. And among the Phobos samples we'll be collecting, they're likely to be Martian samples. So clearly, MMX has a flavor of Mars exploration. And indeed, we have recently published a paper describing, discussing the role MMX can play in the new era of Martian exploration that Perseverance is opening up. So please welcome us, JAXA, to the Martian Exploration Club. And thank you very much, Misaki, and congratulations once again on the success of Hayabusa 2. It has also been wonderful to see the collaboration that is taking place between all of you at JAXA and the OSIRIS-REx team, which is uh, bringing its samples back right now. Uh, it, it's extremely exciting stuff. Hessa, you're going to uh, take the final position here. We're ready for your presentation. Thank you for having me here. I'm so excited to be here to share a status from the Emirates Mars mission. This is a status update on HOPROBE. We've launched last year amid the pandemic in the summer, July 20, 2021, and we had our launch from Japan. We've gone into seven months journey and arrived to Mars in February 9th, 2021. We began our science phase uh, end of May, in May 23rd, 2021, after checking the instruments and calibrating it as well. And we're looking for a science mission for one Martian year in order to understand the different seasons of Mars and what happens to the atmosphere. So what science are we targeting at Mars? We're there to study the Martian atmosphere, the different layers specifically it has. So we're studying the lower atmosphere and the upper atmosphere and looking into the links in between them as well. We do have three scientific instruments. We have Emirates Exploration Imager that takes images from the visible band and even ultraviolet bands and studies the lower atmosphere. And then we have the Emirates Mars Infrared Spectrometer, EMERS, it's studying the lower atmosphere as well, adjacent to EXI with the infrared band. And then we have the Emirates Mars ultraviolet spectrometer looking into the upper atmosphere, specifically the thermosphere layer and the exosphere. Through this instrumentation, we have coordinated observation in a way that whenever we're looking at Mars, we have an image or scientific data from the three instruments coordinated together, as you can see in this image. And that's very useful so we can understand what's happening in the lower atmosphere and the climate and what's going on in the upper atmosphere and how we can understand the vertical transport in between them as well. Our orbit is very special. Uh, the dimension of it is 20,000 kilometers by 43,000 kilometers, like it's very wide elliptical. No other mission had traveled to such orbit before, but it's there to enable our science. And that's how we're able to study the different layers through this orbit. And you can see through the animation as the propens moving around the orbit. And this is what we have on the bottom, uh, our visible imager images. We can cover Mars as a whole. We're looking into different geographical features on Mars as it's rotating. And we're looking even into the diurnal variation. You can see how we're moving from night to day within the orbit itself. So hope is the only mission right now at Mars that give us this kind of combination of global geographic coverage and local time coverage, which is very useful to try and assess the Martian atmosphere and to understand its circulation and transport. We are able to measure the hydrogen corona up to more than 20,000 kilometers. So we're able to look very far in order to understand the escape rate specifically for hydrogen and even oxygen in the exosphere of Mars. I would like just to conclude that we're very excited in the upcoming milestone that we have, which is in the beginning of October. We're looking into releasing our first data from the mission itself with the whole community. It will be available free of charge in our Science Data Center uh, website. Everyone would be able like, to download the data, study it, and that would be an invitation for the whole community to join us into this exploration. Hessa Almatrushi of the Emirates Mars Mission, closing out the Planet of Robots panel, 
at the 2021 Humans to Mars Summit. I'll be back in a minute with my third and final H2M panel, Artemis to Mars, an international collaboration. Bruce and What's Up are also ahead. Hi again, everyone. It's Bruce. Many of you know that I'm the program manager for the Planetary Society's LightSail program. LightSail 2 made history with its launch and deployment in 2019, and it's still sailing. It will soon be featured in the Smithsonian's new Futures exhibition. Your support made this happen. LightSail still has much to teach us. Will you help us sail on into our extended mission? Your gift will sustain daily operations and help us inform future solar sailing missions like NASA's NEA Scout. When you give today, your contribution will be matched up to $25,000 by a generous society member. Plus, when you give $100 or more, we will send you the official LightSail 2 Extended Mission Patch to wear with pride. Make your contribution to science and history at planetary.org slash S-A-I-L-O-N. That's planetary.org slash sail on. Thanks. The last of my Humans to Mars Summit sessions we'll draw highlights from was actually the lead-off panel for this year's summit. As the Artemis Lunar Program goes into high gear, we wanted to shine a light on how the Artemis partners are building on the experience gained through the International Space Station to prepare for that new station called Gateway and for putting humans back on the surface of the moon. You'll hear from David Parker, the European Space Agency's Director of Human and Robotic Exploration. Prior to this, he served as Chief Executive of the United Kingdom Space Agency. Also, Hiroshi Sasaki, Japanese Space Agency Vice President and Director General for the Human Spaceflight Technology Directorate. Hiroshi also leads JAXA's Space Exploration Center and Space Exploration Innovation Hub Center. My first question, though, went to Catherine Leaders, who has just been named Associate Administrator for NASA's new Space Operations Mission Directorate. She had served with the same title at what was known as the Human Exploration and Operations Mission Directorate. Kathy previously managed the Commercial Crew Program. She joined NASA nearly 30 years ago working on the shuttle program, followed by many years of support for the International Space Station. I like to think of it as perhaps the greatest international peacetime collaboration among nations uh, ever. And maybe the technological achievements of the ISS over the last 20 years are, are more obvious. But could you say a little bit more about how it has taught all of the agencies involved to work together to make all these different systems and components and uh, approaches mesh? Yeah, people don't realize sometimes we make it look so easy. But there's there's a it, it took us a little while to figure out how to work together and be able to team together and and at what level we need to work together and at what level we can operate separately. Right. You don't have to do everything together, but there it's important to have these governance discussions and teaming discussions and ways that we work together and make decisions on a day-to-day basis and create those and create the, the structures to be able to do that. Very, very important. We've evolved over time and the partnership has evolved over time. And how we work through those new evolutions together has been a growth experience for us. You know, when we started the uh, partnership 20 years ago, we didn't know then we were going to be doing commercial cargo and commercial crew vehicles to the ISS. So that was an evolution that the team had to work through together. And there's been many evolutions like that along the way where we've had to work together and expand how each of the countries and each of the the key agencies are using the International Space Station. And that means that there's give and take along the way. But learning how to do that and being able to understand that we're doing it together and for the research and technology needs that we all have has really, I think, really been an important stepping stone for us in establishing the same processes and learning from the processes and getting ready for Gateway. David, Hiroshi, anything to add to that? Maybe I just uh, confirm everything that Kathy says and say that there's a, there's a relationship at an organizational level, but there are a lot of real important human relationships, uh, connections behind the scenes 
that those are often more important because it's when something goes wrong and when there's a challenge. Um, I have a trivial example, there's a, you know, there's a storm in the United States, so NASA can't send its plane to go and collect an astronaut landing in Kazakhstan. Can ESA help out? Yes, of course we can. You don't start writing a contract or something to discuss that first. It's how can we help each other? Um, and of course, NASA's tremendous experience and heritage in human space flight is something that agencies like ESA, and I guess JAXA and the Canadian Space Agency, have been able to benefit from that heritage and move more quickly, maybe uh, learn from experience and not make mistakes. But I, I just really want to emphasize this, the human connections that uh, are coming into the space station world, and particularly I came from the outside of the space station world, I have seen how real those those people-to-people -people connections are that make it work day in, day out, behind the scenes. doesn't never make headlines, but it's it's really happening. Yeah. Yeah. I also think, think that the early phase of the ISS, uh, JAXA is uh, learning the similar things from the NASA. Currently, the... So through uh, the 10, 10 years or 20 years, uh, we learned a lot of things, and uh, especially the, uh, how to uh, coordinate international collaborations or how to design the system and how to operate the human space uh, system. And so uh, we can uh, easily talk with uh, each other, uh, with ESA and NASA, and to develop a system or operate the system. Kathy, I'm going to come back to you as it looks increasingly unlikely that uh, uh, the first woman and the next man are going to be uh, walking on the moon by 2024. What is the outlook uh, for that human return to, uh, to the moon? It does look like we're seeing substantial progress, even if it may not be moving as quickly as some people might like. We always give ourselves big goals, right? Because I think the important thing is to show that this is something we want to do in the near term, right? It's not a long-term goal. I think, you know, obviously we have some challenges right now because we're working through some contract award pieces. So that, that, that makes that start be pushed back until we get through our contract protest pieces. I, I do think when we do that, the team's going to sit down with their providers and start laying out how quickly can we get there. As we've learned, when you're trying to do these really, really hard things, and it's the first time we've had a landing in a, in a while, it'll probably take a little bit longer than we, we have in our initial goals that we have, right? I do think it, it was an important thing for us to have an immediate goal, but once we get through the contract award pieces, we'll, we'll figure out what we think the schedule is then and then start laying in our planning for that. We are working with David on flying the the two assembly modules for the gateway at the same time. So we do have kind of a, a group of missions that we're looking to accomplish in that 25, 26, 27 time period that will be the first landing on the moon, but will then also be our assembly missions for the gateway. So I think there'll be enough excitement in those mid-20s to keep people going even if we don't absolutely get boots on the moon on, in 2024, but we're going to, we're, we're still working on it. Let me follow up on that specifically about the gateway. Could any of you imagine taking on a project like the gateway? If we had not learned what we have with the international space station, uh, David, you want to try that first? Well, of course, the short answer is, is no. Um, yeah. I mean, the, the, the very challenge of assembling all these pieces of the ISS miraculously above our heads in orbit uh, is a totally extraordinary human feat. Now we're going to assemble, okay, a much smaller system, but a much more integrated system, a thousand times further out in space, and use it for 10 or 15 years or more, I'm sure, based on the trust and the heritage and the technical knowledge that we've built up on the space station and it's also been established through the different partners discussing and saying well we think we could do this part could you do that part uh, now that we start to develop it doesn't it make sense if we all use these common elements maybe that's made in the united states or that japan provides the life support systems this makes sense great uh, We'll, when we're doing the science, we're preparing the science for the gateway now. It's a common program of science where we decide a common vision of the science and maybe one agency leads on one piece of uh, scientific hardware and somebody else leads another one. But the, the, pl 
planning and the science is done by international teams. So I, I think it's incredibly exciting. The, the, I keep talking about the gateway being humanity's most distant research outpost. Mm -hmm. I come back to that vision of the Antarctic research mm -hmm. station. Yeah. It's like an Antarctic research station, just a long, long way away. I also love your reference to the eighth continent. I uh, I think that's a, <laughs> going to be a lovely way. I hope that future school children will think of the moon that way. Hiroshi Sasaki, could you also talk about JAXA's contributions to the Gateway, but also the thinking that JAXA is doing about participating in humans on the moon and, and in preparation for Mars? We all know that we are looking at Artemis as a stepping stone to Mars, but the moon has its own value as we have heard throughout these presentations. Yeah, for the uh, Jackson and uh, Japanese government also, moon is a very important. First of all, we would like to, uh, we uh, launched the Kaguya, I presented, and uh, uh, it searched the water ice on the moon. Uh, first of all, we'd like to search the water ice on the, uh, on the moon surface, and uh, if possible, we'd like to use uh, this uh, water ice to the uh, Mars missions. Science team is also uh, very interested in the uh, moon uh, surface. So, the, uh, for example, the, some people are uh, thinking that the uh, space observatory system on the moon, or uh, they want to pick up the moon uh, quake system to evaluate the moon uh, structures. So such kind of moon uh, uh, science also interested uh, from the Japanese people. And uh, also the uh, industries or private companies want to develop the, some sometimes hotels and uh, entertainment place that they want to send the uh, people to the moon. I'm glad you brought up that uh, that ice, that uh, that enticing ice that we now know exists, at least at the poles and perhaps elsewhere on the moon, because it, of course, brings up ISRU, uh, In-Situ Resource Utilization, which, David, I was very interested to hear about the work that's being done by ESA. You were talking about titanium and oxygen. We all know that um, ISRU is something that is uh, thought of as an essential, perhaps more from Mars than on the moon. Yeah, well, I mean, space resources is a big topic which deserves a session of its own. And the point I like to make is that before people can use space resources uh, to support sustainable exploration, we have to do the science and the enabling technology first. And when you start to do the calculations of how much energy you need to extract resources in a meaningful scale and use them, it can become quite daunting. But also doing that, if you can do that, it creates capabilities which are definitely needed for Mars exploration. I, I, I think that it's an important scientific and research topic. And so we have a plan and it's a long-term plan. Uh, and we have some countries in Europe, for example, Luxembourg, that is particularly interested in this topic. And so we set up a jointly a space a resources innovation center to really focus on the science and technology. And there's some cool work going on right now as I've already shown you, but also things that are uh, coming along for the future. And so some of our moon exploration activities include, yes, taking the drill technology we developed for ExoMars and apply developing an ice drill that we can take to the moon. Uh, and that's in cooperation with Roscosmos, with the Russian space agency, Beluda 27, to try and get a meter or so below the surface of the lunar regular. Kathy, I'm going to come back to you with a, a little bit more of a philosophical question and let you lead off. Any doubt in your mind that the ultimate target remains the red planet, uh, putting boots on Mars? Let me tell you, we are we have a red planet on all of our charts, <laughs> so we're 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 aiming towards that. I mean, I think you know, even if you look at the orbit that we have Gateway in, it's chosen in particular based on for us to go get ready and be able to have the features that we can have the gateway in to be able to have us be able to get ready for a transit to Mars. And I've been getting ideas for a new chart for next year that starts showing all the different things in our architecture that are there because we're getting ready for Mars. You know, I always tell Thomas, I said, Zubukin, I say, I'm following you now, 
But at some stage, at some stage, we'll be helping you when we get there to be able to really be able to do the science. I told them, I said, a human would have been able to scoop up the, the sample and been able to put it in a container and take it back home. And so it just shows once again that having people there kind of opens up the ability to do additional science and technology work. I'm hoping one day to be there helping Thomas on the Red Planet. Eyes on the prize. And David, we'll uh, give you the chance to uh, give us the brief last word here. Thank you very much. Well, thank you for the panel uh, discussion. I mean, yes, Mars is our horizon goal of our exploration program, absolutely. But it doesn't stop me dreaming of sending ice climbing explorers into the fissures of Enceladus in the next century. Thanks. Talk about the ultimate prize. Highlights of my three panels at the 2021 Humans to Mars Summit. You can enjoy all of the many sessions presented in mid-September at exploremars.org. As always, I'm very grateful to Explore Mars for allowing me to contribute. The Planetary Society was once again a sponsor of H2M. Time for What's Up on Planetary Radio. Here is the Chief Scientist of the Planetary Society. That's Bruce Betts. Welcome once again. Thank you, Matt. Good to hear you. Yeah, good to hear you, and and always good to see you as well. Since we can see each other uh, as we do these, uh, thanks to the video uh, feature of Zencaster, seriously, <laughs> we ought to consider publishing these so people could watch us. Bad idea? I think it will reduce listenership considerably. Uh, what, if, what if I wore a hat? Oh, then problem <laughs> solved. <laughs> What's up? <laughs> well, what is wonderful to look at in the night sky and doesn't require a hat, man, that was, that was forced, uh, is Venus low in the West, eh, kind of low. After sunset, Venus looking super bright, as it always does. The crescent moon will be hanging out with it on October 9th. And then we've got the reddish star in, this brightest star in Scorpius, Antares, that will be getting closer and closer to Venus over the next few days, and we'll hang out with the Moon and Venus on the no October 9th, Antares being much dimmer, but still a bright star and quite uh, reddish. We've also got over in the uh, middle of the sky, over in the south in the early evening, we've got really bright Jupiter, and to its right, yellowish Saturn, and the Moon will hang out with them on October 14th. I'm looking for clarification. What do you mean by the middle of the sky? Yeah, I made that up. That. <laughs> well, okay. You you do you want to know? Do you want to know why my yeah. brain just fried out? Okay. I am not as friendly in my uh, reports as I should be, but it gets complicated for our southern hemisphere listeners. And so, when planets are hanging out in the east or the west. Basically, they're in the east or the west, whatever hemisphere you're in. When planets are hanging out in the middle of the sky, a term I made up, then if you're in the northern hemisphere, the planets tend to hang out in the south. And if you're in the southern hemisphere, they tend to hang out in the north. So I usually say the south, and our southern hemisphere listeners are smart enough to reverse that and look to the north, but I feel badly, so I resorted to just making up something on the fly. Are you glad you asked? I am, actually, yes, because that will stay with me now, and I will always know to uh, to stick to the middle ground. <laughs> yeah. I, um, anyway, let us move on to something more concrete this week in space history. 1957, Sputnik 1 uh. becomes first satellite in orbit. A year later, not coincidentally soon after, was formed NASA, uh, in October of uh, 1958. And then much more recently, in 2016, Rosetta ended its spectacular mission by setting down on Comet 67P this week in 2016. Just another note of clarification, Sputnik 1, not made of concrete, right? Not to my knowledge. What did, did you think it was? You said to become more concrete. <laughs> <laughs> well, this is a classic episode. <laughs> <laughs> it's another fine mess you've gotten me it, into. <laughs> it's not. No, that'll be the trivia contest. What was Sputnik made of concrete? No, it's oh. not. It wasn't. And let us go on to a random space. <laughs> 
(laughs) (sighs) Neptune's moon, Nesso, is the most distant moon from its planet known. How distant is it? At its farthest from Neptune. Nesso is farther from Neptune than Mercury is from the sun at its farthest from the sun. It's way out there. That's good. Thank you. We can rebuild this. All right, let us go on to the trivia question. I asked you, I personally found this rather fascinating, uh, what was the largest telescope by primary mirror diameter during the 19th century, so the 1800s? How'd we do, Matt? We had not only a complete recovery, I guess everybody's back from vacation. It's way up there. A lot of people were fascinated by this question. Almost everyone had the right answer. I am very proud to say it's been over five years since he has won because of a random.org choice. Uh, He did have a win in the middle there because of uh, some kind of artistic or poetic uh, contribution. But if he's correct, the winner this week is our poet laureate, Dave Fairchild in in Kansas. Here's his response. Back in the 19th century, the largest telescope was built in good old Ireland, and it was really dope. Leviathan of Parsontown is what they called this boss. And if you check the mirror, it was six feet straight across, 72 inches. Yeah? That is correct. Congratulations. Congratulations, Dave. Great job. Uh, You have won yourself a Planetary Society kick asteroid, rubber asteroid. And uh, yeah, thanks for all the poems, too. We have other stuff. I was hoping you, you did. Here is one of the few... Incorrect answers, but very interesting. Perry Metzger in New Hampshire. Andrew Common, 60-inch reflector installed at his house in Ealing, England, around 1890, made the mirror himself. The mirror, according to Perry anyway, the mirror was later used by Harvard and still later by an observatory in South Africa. So wrong, Perry, but still fascinating. There's good random space facts there. Michael Caspol in Germany, the Earl of Ross, he's the one who built it, Sure had a thrilling time observing not only by what he saw, but by bending over the eyepiece at some 30 to 40 feet high on a gallery. Wow. Ah, the good old days of observing. Yeah, he used to climb up almost to the stratosphere, right? To uh, sit at the uh, the focus of uh, the Palomar, yeah? (laughs) I, I did. I did have the amazing experience of being up there, but not for observing, but for, uh, uh, adjusting instruments at the focus and oh. just to show the the new grad student what it was like up at the prime focus stage. <laughs> it's called hazing, I think. Kent Murley <laughs> in Washington. If someone had to inherit an earldom and the land of nearly happy sheep, rolling green vistas, and poets filled with Guinness, at least it was a maths honor student willing to open his pocketbook to build astro gear. Yep, yeah, early uh, hero of science, I guess. Ola Franzen in Sweden loves the fact that it apparently only had on average 60 observing nights per year, but that's what you get when you build it in pretty much the rainiest place in Europe. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, yeah, oddly enough, they don't build a lot of modern observatories in Ireland. (laughs) (laughs) And here's one I think you'll like. In spite of that, another one was built. It's a reconstruction of this telescope. It was completed in 1999 as a Millennium Project, and it's a, a tourist attraction. I'd like to see that, wouldn't you? I, I would, in Burr, in Ireland. Yes, yes, in Burr. We got uh, quite a few poems, actually. You don't have time to read all of this one, but here's the closing stanza from Mark Jesh, Jaschok, I think, in Queensland, Australia. The mirror was made of speculum metal polished to a high sheen, but it tarnished rather easily, so they made two to keep one clean. I really hope this is the right answer, and it wasn't all in vain, as this is my first poem, and I found it quite a pain. (laughs) Indeed. Finally, if we can squeeze it in, this one from uh, Gene Lewin in Washington. In the middle of the Emerald Isle, land of the leprechaun, William Parsons, Earl of Rossi, built the Leviathan. Two parts copper, one of tin, its mirror, speculum. Its length was 54 feet long and weighed about 12 tons. Within Burr Castle, this scope doth set, built with help from wife Mary. And though it peers deep into space, it's not far from Tipperary. <laughs> it's a long way to Tipperary. Okay. Tipperary. 
It was the largest telescope in the world from 1845 until the 100-inch was built in the mountains above above me in Pasadena, Altadena. Yep, still up there, still doing astronomy. Yeah, very cool place to visit if you're uh, ever in our neck of the woods, folks. All right, what do you got for next time? In a random connection of two facts that are truly unrelated, what moon of a planet has an orbital period closest to 24 hours? So if you look at all the moons in our solar system, what moon goes around its planet closest to one Earth day? And that's a sidereal period for those uh, playing the home game. Wow, does Wikipedia have a list of all moons and their characteristics? I bet a lot of you are going to find out when you look this one (laughs) up. No one uses (laughs) the web to answer these, do they? Uh, No, never. Of course not. Why would they? You have until 8 a.m. on uh, 8 a.m. Pacific on Wednesday, October 6th. Can you believe it? We're almost in the last quarter of the year. Wednesday at 8 a.m. October 6th uh, to enter this one and win yourself, yep, once again, a Planetary Society kick asteroid, rubber asteroid. We're done. All right, everybody, go out there, look up the night sky and think about if you had a really big telescope, what would you name it? Thank you. Good night. <laughs> I, would, I would christen it the Bruce Betts Middle of the Sky Tell us that's going to be better than that. No, it's got to be better than that. I'll I'll work on it, okay? <laughs> that will make it be... <laughs> oh, clowns to the left of me, jokers to the right. Here I am. Stuck in the middle with the chief scientist of the Planetary Society. That's Bruce Betts. will join us once again next week for What's Up. Planetary Radio is produced by the Planetary Society in Pasadena, California, and is made possible by its members who want a vacation on Mars someday. Make the journey with us at planetary.org slash join. Mark Hilverda and Jason Davis are our associate producers. Josh Doyle composed our theme, which is arranged and performed by Peter Schlosser. Ad Astro. Ad Astro.